Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As renewable energy sources keep spreading, one big question remains. What to do with the surplus power they generate? And where to get that power when the sun don't shine? We take a look at engineers' increasingly intriguing ideas. And it seems that no country loves dogs more than America does. There's one pooch for every four people. To find out more about this national obsession, our correspondent headed to the National Dog Show, where every dog has his day. But first... Yesterday, the de facto leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, appeared before the International Court of Justice in The Hague to answer accusations of war crimes. It was a stunning turn for a woman who was once hailed as a champion of peace. For years, Ms. Suu Kyi was lauded as one of the world's great democratic heroes. Starting in the late 1980s, she peacefully campaigned for Myanmar, formerly Burma, to throw off military rule. But the military tried to contain the movement and put her under house arrest. For her efforts, she won the Nobel Peace Prize 28 years ago this week. The Nobel Peace Prize laureate 1991, Aung San Suu Kyi. She was only able to collect the award in 2012, after her 15 years of captivity came to an end. Ultimately, our aim should be to create a world free from the displaced, the homeless, and the hopeless. A world of which each and every corner is a true sanctuary where the inhabitants will have the freedom and the capacity to live in peace. Just a few years later, a crisis in Myanmar began to unfold. In 2015, the Rohingya, a Muslim minority that had been marginalized for decades, were forced to cross the border into Bangladesh. But in response to guerrilla attacks by Rohingya the next year, the military went much further, starting a violent crackdown, burning down entire villages and murdering thousands. As the pogrom reached its peak in 2017, perhaps a million Rohingya fled into Bangladesh. All the while, Ms. Suu Kyi, who had been imprisoned for speaking out about that same military, said nothing. When she became the nation's state councillor in 2016, the head of government in all but name, her failure to condemn the campaign of violence came as a shock. Now, Ms. Suu Kyi is defending the brutal repression of the Rohingya under an international spotlight in The Hague. Will you continue to deny genocide? Why are you defending the military? So it's been quite a scene outside the International Court of Justice in The Hague. 
Edward McBride is The Economist's Asia editor. There are two huge crowds gathered, one to support Myanmar and its leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, the other one to hurl abuse at her. People bringing around food for the protesters to eat. There's, it's almost like two encampments, banners. This has really been the moment that everyone's waited for when Burma's leader, Nobel Prize laureate, shows up and makes her case to the international community. So how is it that she's ended up in, in, in this position? Aung San Suu Kyi has come to defend Myanmar against allegations of genocide. The Gambia, which is acting on behalf of the OIC, a big grouping of Muslim countries, has brought the case saying that the treatment of the Rohingya Muslim minority in Myanmar is tantamount to genocide and that they want the court to take immediate action. Thousands of people have already died as a direct result of Myanmar's genocidal actions. And the number of refugees on exodus is of biblical proportions. Do you think that the accusations that the Gambia is leveling are, are, are fair, are understandable? So I don't think there's much doubt on the part of the international community that a terrible pogrom took place in the western part of Myanmar where most Rohingyas live in 2017, led by the Burmese army. Many thousands of people were killed, many villages were burnt, raised to the ground. A little under a million people fled to Bangladesh, which is nearby. There have been hundreds of thousands of eyewitness accounts of horrible crimes. So I think the Gambia has presented a, a very persuasive case with lots of evidence relying on very reputable sources, UN commissions of inquiry, and so on. And so during the time that, that these atrocities were being carried out, how did Aung San Suu Kyi react? Both in 2017, when the worst of the atrocities were happening, and since then, when there are still reports of mistreatment of Rohingyas to this day, all that time, the government of Myanmar essentially said, look, there's a guerrilla war going on in this area between Rohingyas attacking the army and the, and the police and the army fighting back. And there may well have been civilian casualties. There have clearly been homeless refugees by the conflict. But, you know, this is all just the fog of war. And if there have been any instances of indiscipline or, or human rights abuses on the part of the army, we'll look into it, we'll punish them. That's been their claim of, of, of what's happening all along. So what did Ms. Suchi say in her, her testimony at, at the court? Aung San Suu Kyi repeated that Burmese government line that, that, in effect, to the extent there have been human rights abuses, they will be looked into and punished. The other thread of her argument was that it was impossible to consider this genocide even if human rights abuses were proved because, she argued, the Burmese government was making every effort to prosecute people who were seen to have committed crimes. Please bear in mind this complex situation and the challenge to sovereignty and security in our country when you are assessing the intent of those who attempted to deal with the rebellion. Surely, under the circumstances, genocidal intent cannot be the only hypothesis. And she argued that any government that was trying to hold its citizens accountable for their crimes was, on first principles, not trying to commit genocide because the two ideas were not compatible. So it's, it sounds as if she's not so much answering the allegations against the military as, as kind of ducking the question, as, as, as answering different questions. That's right. I, mean, I think a lot of people expected her to come and make apologies for the military in a, in a more forceful way, to argue, as lots of 
government spokespeople have in Myanmar over the past couple of years that really there were no atrocities, that this was all a terrible misunderstanding, you know, that, that in effect the refugees kind of deported themselves, you know, burnt down their own homes. I mean, absurd arguments like that have been made by the Burmese government over the last couple of years. But Aung San Suu Kyi didn't say that. What she said was, look, it's a difficult situation. We're doing the best we can, in effect. Don't undermine us by sort of you know, going over our heads and, and making this an international issue. That still doesn't address this point uh, of, of her having been. I mean, she was subject to the rule of this same military. She's, she, she has campaigned against them for, for absolutely decades and was expected to go to, to court and be an apologist for them. How, how is it that she's in that position at all? And it is extraordinary. I mean, she won the, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. I think what explains it is two things. You know, one is domestic political considerations within Myanmar. The ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya, as reprehensible as it was, was wildly popular with the mass of the Burmese public. They view the Rohingya as not truly Burmese, but sort of uh, illegal immigrants in effect. There's an election in 2020 next year, and I think partly Aung San Suu Kyi just wanted to put herself on the side of the uh, Burmese public, even if that's not the sort of conduct we expect from a, a Nobel Peace Prize winner. The other explanation is a little bit more speculation, but the whole reason Aung San Suu Kyi is in politics at all within Burma is because her father was one of the independence heroes back in 1945. He founded the Burmese army. He, he led the country to independence, was assassinated before he could become the, the president or, or govern the country. But he was so well known that simply by being his daughter, um, she was able to rise to the top of Burmese politics. And as a democracy activist, you know, she commanded instant respect. And I think she associates herself very strongly with that idea of the country, its independence, and even with the army in the sense that, you know, her father founded the Burmese army. One explanation for why she's here might be that she feels a responsibility to try and somehow help the national cause and set the record straight and defend the country and the army with which her family is so strongly associated. But nevertheless, that seems to be turning a blind eye towards widely reported atrocities, either for political gain or for protecting the family name. I mean, this is still not the woman, you know, the Nobel Committee was, was thinking of. Absolutely not. Grotesque abuses took place in the Rohingya areas of Myanmar. And not only has she not really tried to push back very hard. Not only has she not spoken out against this, but actually now she's here in The Hague seeming to defend it. I think there is no conclusion other than that she's just not quite the person that, that the Nobel Committee thought. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Generating power from the wind or the sun is not only cleaner, but often cheaper than doing so by burning coal or gas. 
But renewables don't always provide power at the times or in the quantities that are required. Storing reserves of green energy so it can be used when it's needed remains a challenge. And a handful of companies are devoting themselves to what's called stationary storage, with some innovative results. So there are lots of different ideas for ways to store power over a longer period. Charlotte Howard is The Economist's energy and commodities editor. And one of them is this plan from Energy Vault, which sounds like it was designed by a 10-year-old. Introducing Energy Vault. We have developed a groundbreaking energy storage technology. But essentially you have a six-armed crane that lifts heavy blocks into a tall, tall tower, sort of the world's biggest Jenga tower. The crane lifts the bricks. The energy is stored in the elevation gain. And then when it needs energy, it drops those blocks and gathers the electricity generated from dropping them. I would love to see one of these things in action. It it sounds wild. Are, Are investors taking the idea seriously? So that's the interesting thing, is that there are some big investors who are watching this space closely and putting cash into Energy Vault and its rivals. So SoftBank, which is a, a very large tech investor, invested $110 million in Energy Vault in August. Let's wind back a bit. Why are these sort of slightly outlandish ideas needed in the first place? I think when you try to consider the importance of stationary storage, which is a subject that sort of makes your eyes glaze over, it helps to begin with the main strategy for fighting climate change such as it exists. So there are generally two steps. One is to reduce emissions from the electricity sector, and the second is to electrify more activities like driving cars, for instance. So you slash emissions from electricity and then you electrify more stuff. And uh, in order to do that, solar and wind have seen a remarkable increase in recent years. The costs have plummeted by 70 and 90 percent, respectively, over the past decade. The problem is that neither of those produces power reliably. So the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And so they need to be backed up by something. Often they're backed up by either coal or natural gas, which can uh, ramp up and wrap down quite rapidly. And storage could disrupt that. So the idea is that the potential of storage is to capture extra clean energy when it's available and then hold it until demand rises. And if you could do that on a very large scale, then you could really begin to put sort of terminal pressure on fossil fuel electric plants. And so the technology you mentioned, this this Jenga tower of concrete blocks, you think that could solve this large scale problem? The example of Energy Vault is a case of where storage might go in the future. But for now, lithium-ion batteries are really where attention is focused. And the reason for that is that manufacturing has ramped up dramatically thanks to demand from electric vehicles. And the costs of lithium-ion batteries have dropped with that increase in in scale. And so that means that lithium-ion batteries are now cheap enough not just to put in cars, but also to deploy on electric grids. So you see lithium-ion batteries now serving all kinds of different purposes within uh, power grids, including sort of helping to keep the grid in balance when there are minor fluctuations in supply, a cloud passes over the sun, or uh, there's a sudden gust of wind. And then they also can serve the really important role of shifting power from the day, for instance, in California, when there's a huge amount of extra solar power in the early afternoon and demand is quite low, and holding on to that power for several hours and releasing it in the evening when demand rises. 
So it sounds like lithium-ion batteries have a lot going for them, that they already are the solution. Why, why aren't they? The problem with lithium-ion batteries is that they just aren't going to be able to store electricity for long enough to account for an extended rainy period, for instance, for longer than several hours. You're going to need different types of storage. So what about some other alternative ideas, like the, like the concrete blocks being lifted up and down? So there are a variety of different ideas. There's one company that is backed by this cluster of billionaires, which include um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Bill Gates, Jack Ma, founder of Alibaba, and Ray Dalio, a hedge fund giant, and so forth. And uh, this company wants to pump water into underground old oil reservoirs and keep it pressurized there and then release it. There's another company that was incubated out of MIT called Form Energy, which also is backed by the same group of billionaires that has an electrochemical battery solution. It is a battery. It's just not a lithium ion battery. And they're trying to store energy for uh, a little more than 100 hours, which is much longer than current lithium ion batteries can, can manage. So there is a whole range of, of different technologies out there. If any one of them cracks it and and cheaply, what do you think would happen then to the power industry? If you can get batteries, and again, it may be different types of batteries, it's probably not going to be one single solution for everything, but you'll have different types of batteries serving different roles. If you can get um, a few battery technologies or a few storage technologies, rather, that work really well, that are able to, to store clean power and then release it when that power is needed. It's really a game changer for the power system. If you can do that cheaply, the case for building new coal plants or even building new gas plants, which has fewer carbon emissions, really starts to fade away and you can have a lot of pressure on these fossil fuel plants. Thanks very much for your time, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. So, we got a dog. James Astle is our Washington bureau chief. We'd actually promised our kids a dog as the sort of sweetener to uh, placate them when we moved from the UK to the US. Took us a couple of years to get the dog, we got the dog, and I was staggered when I travelled back from South Carolina where I bought this little terrier puppy to our home in Maryland by the attention that it drew in public. People literally sort of threw themselves at the dog, cooing and ahhing and asking to pet it, asking to have their picture taken with the dog. And I must say that that's been sort of continually replicated in our neighbourhood. The dog is known in the neighbourhood. People talk to us who wouldn't previously have thought to do so because they want to say hi to the dog, chat about the dog, ask after the dog. It is extraordinary the enthusiasm that Americans have for this creature. Most rich countries have become strikingly pro-dog in recent decades, but Americans seem to love them more. They're likelier to own a dog than any other nationality, one for every four people. And James felt inspired to investigate this obsession. I thought I'd better find a place where there were lots of dogs and lots of doggy people. I, I went, therefore, to the National Dog Show in Philadelphia, which is one of the oldest American dog shows. 
It has a couple of thousand dogs in a huge aircraft hangar-like convention center with 6,000 people paying to, to come and look at the dogs. Aren't you adorable? And the show is in turn later broadcast on Thanksgiving. Somewhere between 20 and 25 million people tune in. And it, I found it very interesting. It's a sort of smorgasbord of, of dog breeds, all of which you can, you can go and ask about and learn about. Seems to be all hair. I can't see it's any. It's an old English sheepdog. It is. Yes. Yes. It's got her coat. Oh. So this, this is a miniature poodle. You're doing some major coiffuring here. Yeah, it's called a spray up. So, for the purpose of my serious journalistic endeavour to understand what Americans really thought about dogs, I, I asked them directly at the dog show. Dogs are really, they love unconditionally. I don't know, you just feel really good inside when you have a dog connect with you. The dogs kind of seem like they enjoy being part of your pack and they become part of our pack as a family. I think that dogs are wannabe humans and I think that's adorable and I love them. The show was also instructive in that Americans seem to have a particular thing for pedigree breeds. When dog ownership and especially sort of the petting of dogs really took off in America in the 1950s and 60s. Pedigree breeds were the main sort of object of enthusiasm. Pedigree breeds, they'd been developed and shown in the mid-late 19th century by upper-class Brits, essentially. And I think that there's a little bit of sort of a middle-class aspirational enthusiasm for these extraordinary and extraordinarily specialised breeds uh, has, has sort of borne along the American enthusiasm for dogs. And I suppose one little illustrative detail on that is that the Pembroke Welsh Corgi, which is, of course, the Queen of England's favourite breed, is far more popular in America than it is in the UK. And indeed, there were plenty of corgis on display in Philadelphia that day. He's eight months old. He got his first points here uh, yesterday and the day before. Well, they are very popular. People, as you can see, people are just crowding around them. And and is that because of the Queen? I'll say yes. (laughs) And in addition to that aspirational attraction of dogs, there's also a media environment that was sort of constantly pushing dogs at Americans. Lassie, for, for example, surely the most famous dog on TV. This is Lassie's cousin. Okay. <laughs> Obviously very m- memorable this to look is, at. This is the rough collie. So there is a theory that Lassie is largely responsible for America's craziness about dogs. Is that right? I'm definitely a contributor. Lassie, Rin Tin Tin, there was quite a few. And I generally herding breeds, actually. What would a dog like this cost me? Our puppies go for around $1,400. Him right now... You can't buy them. <laughs> and, and so how would you, you sum it all up, your, uh, your experience digging into the, the love of dogs, the, the class issues around dogs? What's your sort of take-home message? I think there are different stories around dogs that one can tell, and that's why they're so interesting in the American cultural context. It's, you know, might sound frivolous, but it's, it's not a small thing given the amount of time and money that Americans devote to dog ownership, talking about dogs and teasing about dogs. But it's in the end of more heartwarming importance than those separate cultural, political, social, economic 
strands is just the, the basic realization that dog love is very, very widely shared in America. And that's frankly rather uplifting given that the country is, is currently divided in so many ways. James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And all my best to your dog. <laughs> I'll pass it on. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.